Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Bullshift the Podcast, where we talk about behavioral economics from a uh, personal finance perspective and with a specific uh, inf- interest in optimism bias. We talk about how the industry shifts your attention to being more bullish. My name is John DeGuy. I'm the host of the podcast and the author of the book, Bullshift. I want to thank you for uh, joining us today. If you haven't already done so, please like and subscribe. And let's move on to this week's guest. This week's guest is Amos Nadler who uh, is the founder and chief scientist at the Prof of Wall Street. And I don't know if uh, Jordan Belfort actually deserves any royalties for that name, but the Prof of Wall Street, which is the world's first quantitative behavioral fintech firm. He has a PhD in behavioral finance and neuroeconomics and was an assistant professor of finance at the Ivy Business School at Western and has served as the chief economist in crypto and digital assets. Amos, welcome. Hey, thank you, John. I appreciate the invite. It's interesting because uh, there are a lot of people that are really smart PhD types that appear on this podcast, and I always feel a bit uh, you know, leery because I'm just some guy, and the people I'm talking to are, are experts in the field. And, but despite that, I, I want to get your expert view on some of the things that people do that are just, they're biased, but they don't know it. They make mistakes. They don't realize they're making them. And I'm wondering about things like, um, I don't know, selling your winners too soon, as an example. Uh, can you talk about how people do that, why people do that, and, and, and maybe a suggestion as to what you can do about it? Absolutely. Let's, let's get into the big one. Yeah. Uh, one of the challenges that people deal with is being risk averse. We can think of it as almost like a hallmark of being human, where we make decisions that give us a sense of safety. So your point about your question about selling winners too soon, we see that empirically in the data. Like that is a fact uh, in in trading data. We see that individuals, both professionals and retail investors, will sell winners way too early relative to to the possible upside gain. We know that because in this research, we look at the performance of the asset over the long term. We find that people cut out early and leave tremendous amount of money on the table. So we could get into the reasons why. We could talk about the fancy schmancy sure. economic models that explain it really well. But let's just jump, jump to the conclusion, which is that active management driven by risk aversion leads to massive underperformance, regardless of, of who you are. So that's a major problem in asset management. And humans tend to not be good at correcting that by themselves. Would you... Maybe I could ask you to do the uh, a bit of a sidestep to prospect theory. So the disposition uh, effect and what happens with regard to people, the foibles of active management in trying to time things and trying to pick winners and, and doing things that can't be done reliably. You might do it once or a while, but it's probably just being lucky. But there's a lot of research done by Kahneman and Tversky showing that that people actually feel the pain of a loss twice as acutely as they feel the joy of a gain. And I think that probably relates to the disposition effect. What's your take on on prospect theory? 
That is really the, the nail on the head there. The, my favorite paper on this topic was written uh, by Terry O'Dean. He published the paper in 1998 in the Journal of Finance that completely changed my view of, of trading. It actually gave me the original inspiration to start Profit Wall Street. Now, I can get into that as we talk. But if you read the paper in the very beginning, he actually, actually Terry's friends Terry's with, Kenny Don, with, uh, with Danny, by the way. They're both at UC Berkeley. They're buddies. Uh, they're both wonderful people. And Terry starts the paper with showing prospect theory. He says, like you said, that that on the on the gain domain, when people experience the gain, they become risk averse and doing the curvature of the utility mm -hmm. function. And then when they lose money, you see the curvature go the opposite direction and become very risk seeking because they're trying to get back to that original reference point. And, so they're, and they're trying to avoid losses. Yeah, they're, we, they're trying really to don't like losses. They'll take more risks so they don't have to actually trigger an actual loss. Exactly. So we want to close close the the winning position early. And so let's talk about let's, uh, the disposition effect. Nice. The term that you use is really a, a combination of risk aversion on one side and loss aversion on the loss side. So let's let's break these down. So people sell winners too soon because they had a gain, and then oh gosh, I'm afraid of losing that gain. I'll lock it in, go to cash. That's would be fine and dandy, but and this is the core of most of behavioral finance is that the emotional motivation that whether it's emotional or cognitive or neurochemical or whatever it is is not a justifiable economic rationale to do to, to actively trade right <clears throat> so if people are able to hold winners longer assuming that the thesis is still intact in that position then maybe they shouldn't be actively managing that position what they should be actually managing is the underlying thesis and making sure it's still intact because a price isn't necessarily a signal about the value of the asset. It just makes you feel certain things. And then as a reaction to that, you may do something that's not good for your portfolio. And that's on the win side. Wow. It's amazing how we have these irrational quirks and, and we all do it, right? And we all think, oh no, I'm, I'm rational. And, and, there, and the industry actually has ways of this is what I talk about in bull shift, shifting your attention to being more optimistic. One of the things that is a bit of a truism or presumptively true uh, that people say in finance all the time is that no one ever lost money taking a profit. And so when you have that as ingrained in your thought process, then what it does is you're being rewarded. You get the dopamine rush of I, I won because I sold uh, at a gain when in fact, you, you, you basically, it's a cell phone, you lost because you sold when you, you gained 10%, but you could have gained another 50% if you'd have just held for another 18 months or, or what have you. And people don't look at that. They, a lot of people don't go back and reflect upon what they've sold and how that thing that they sold performed after they sold it. They just, they stop thinking about it. They, they, they move on to what they own and they don't do the, you know, the first, uh, first derivative uh, research to think about, okay, what, what would have happened if I'd have just stayed the course? So that's interesting. You a moment ago said that you were wondering about maybe talking about Prof of Wall Street. So this maybe this is a good opportunity. I'm, I'm happy to have you tell me what, what it's about. What's, what's that about? So Prof of Wall Street, exactly what you said. What it, what it is, is the first quantitative behavioral technology that actually does what you said. It reads your trade data. So part of the technology is that we can actually read your trade history. And I can tell you, the degree to which you have specific biases. So your example there of selling winners, you said nobody's ever been in trouble or you know for, for taking profits. Well, I've developed an algorithm that 
can read your trade history and it creates an alternative portfolio called the hidden portfolio. And what it does is it keeps track of everything you've sold and it tells me the performance of all of those assets that are invisible to you because they're no longer on your portfolio. And I take that portfolio and I juxtapose it to your actual performance along with some benchmark. It could be the S&P, it could be the NASDAQ, it could be whatever it is an appropriate benchmark. And I can tell you with exquisite accuracy whether risk of our selling is actually like, are you selling your winners too soon or not? That question is no longer a question. I can tell you in a factual, clear, like black and white way. So that's how I've solved that problem is I analyze your data and we can have a conversation, a factual conversation around, did you leave money on the table or not? Wow. And then what about loss chasing and the way that makes you feel? Can you maybe talk about that for a moment? Oh, loss chasing. That is a, that is a great one. So if, if you know anyone watching hasn't uh, heard that term, so let's do some industry terms on this. I love that you mentioned the sure. example. So what you often hear, and we're going to throw the whole industry under the bus on this one, is average down, right? Just just average down the position, you'll make money. So trying to motivate sales, trying to you know motivate commissions, let's face it. So let, let's average down the position. So buying more of a losing position, you could call that averaging down. You could call it dip buying. You could call it loss chasing. You could call it, if you're upset, you could call it revenge trading, which happens often when people are in a loss, they'll do something to get back to that point. And going back to prospect theory, when you're in the loss position, you're willing to take a lot of risk to get it back to, to make it back to your original reference point. So loss chasing is, is more, that term is more common in gambling. Like you see it in the like pathological gambling literature. There's only like one or two papers in economics about it. And it struck me how prevalent it is and how not talked about the whole thing is. So what I've developed at Profit Wall Street is an algorithm that detects when you are buying more of a losing position. Because the core here is to be quantitative, to be objective, what this algorithm does is it creates a subportfolio of all the times you've done that, all the times you've bought in a losing position, and it just tells you factually what is the performance of that action. Some people are expert dip buyers. Buying the S&P historically is a, is a super reliable buy, like buying a highly diversified ETF like the S&P historically, no problem. Buying more of a losing position of individual stocks, not necessarily as reliable. I've analyzed many, 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 many trades, many, many individual traders. And I can say that some people actually do have a knack for it, but the majority of people don't. The core behavioral factor is people feel bad about the loss. And so if you can reduce your cost basis by buying more of a losing position, you now get to erase the loss because the loss percentage is lower. So what I try to do, so the analytics is the first part, how well does that strategy perform? And the second part is provide guidance. We could talk about uh, smart trade technology, but all this is meant to deal with these specific and known behavioral biases in an extremely rigorous way to de-bias people and to improve performance. I wanted to tie this into optimism bias, which is a big part of the thesis of Bullshift. One, is it fair, would you say it's fair to say, okay, but if, if, if we're averaging down, we're, we're buying the dip, we, we, there are many names for the, the behavior you just mentioned a moment ago, would it be fair to say, well, this is me being optimistic. If I thought this stock was a really good buy at $20, then it's got to be a screaming buy at 16 And as a result, I'm, I'm, I'm going to double down, uh, partially because th th there's a, um, uh, an escalation of commitment, which is, which is one problem that, that many people face. But the other problem is one of, if you really, really believe you were right and the stock was 
a, a screaming buy at 20. All else being equal, if the stock is down to 16, that's a 20% discount on what was already a great price. What am I missing here? I got to buy more. Is that, would you say that's an, an example of optimism or of something else? It's, it is asset specific. Asset specific. Right. It's true that you, nobody really knows what intrinsic value it is at any given moment. You know, to right. use a value investing term, you know, Warren Buffett's always that intrinsic value. Nobody actually, so there, there's so many factors that go into just the formula for calculating the value of an asset. Like even a basic DCF, there's a bunch of variables in there that you we could argue all day and all night about what's the proper discount rate. You know, what's the proper risk premium for equities at this time? Like it's this idea that this asset has a particular value at this time discounted by some future, you know, by future value, by some discount rate. So we never know whether it really is a good deal or not. You could create a convincing narrative around it. I mean, if you're an advisor and you tell people exactly what you said, John, saying it was a crazy deal with 20, now it's even cheaper, you know, the upside's even bigger. We're talking about the future. And like your point about optimism bias is if you're highly optimistic about a particular asset, that's your subjective overlay onto some unknown reality. I address that too, by the way, in, in some of the, the technology that I built is trying to assess, well, what is the future of this asset? What is the justification for the belief in that? There's a tremendous amount of gray area that is resolved over time. And at the moment, you know, it depends on like what time horizon are you talking about? I mean, there are assets that I've bought at a dip knowing it's gonna be three years that before it comes back. I mean, you look at COVID, I bought assets and I knew it's gonna be a long-time recovery but it's going to be a deal at some point because of the soundness of the, all, you know, my whole, you know, 12 point criteria all were met. And I said, I'm willing to sit for a long time. So I think the answer is it depends, but the notion of optimism, there's optimism, there's incentive. So it kind of depends who's talking. Is it an advisor who wants to, to sell something or is it an individual investor or a fund or somebody who's doing something under different incentives? Well, well, let's let's talk about individual investors here at this point. And, and I'm wondering if we can maybe look at it from the perspective of uh, whether it's a micro or macro call. So uh, a micro call would be an individual security. A macro call would be a mutual fund or an ETF. So instead of buying a single security, you're buying a basket, which is diversified. And instead of trying to, to time or call the dip that, as, that it occurred because of something which is perhaps exogenous and, and may or may not re be relevant, you're just looking at the big picture, the macro universe, and all I know is that the S&P is down 11% from where it was last month, and I think that's a good uh, entry point, and so I'm going to do that. Would that be different, in your opinion, from the story we told three minutes ago about uh, the $20 stock being screwing by at $16? Because it's... it. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm asking. I don't know. Uh, it, w w if the people are more inclined toward managing their risk by buying diversified baskets as opposed to individual securities, does that give them more or less or the same amount of license with regard to buying the dip? It's the same idea of separate, separating subjective individual kind of overlays to the facts. I mean, you can look at, so we could talk about the S&P. So massive run-up, largely driven by AI stocks. I mean, I was, you know, NVIDIA is a great example of, of this. You know just going through the roof because of this hype around it. Macro forces are playing a huge role in probably pulling asset values back down, but then you have a certain portion of the S&P that's disproportionately driving it up. When you're talking about a basket of goods, to really parse that through, I, I think, frankly, it's incalculable to any specific individual. 
and to, to, to buy more because you think it's cheap, I'd like to see someone weigh in in, a, in an intelligible way about an index because it's composed of hundreds of, of, of companies. The bigger picture is why are you investing at all? What is your time horizon? What is your, your budget? Are you dollar cost averaging, which is a zero discretion, systematic over time process versus are you reacting to the market? And do you think it's, it's cheap now because it's dropped that, 20, that you know, 10 or 20%? I think when you start peeling back, it gets so complicated that uh, there's no easy answer. However, the emotional impulse is what drives most people. And it doesn't even look at the fundamentals, like let's say PE ratio matters or earnings matters or whatever. That's what we try to separate out. The objective fundamental macro factors versus this is how I feel and therefore I'm going to do this. That's the distinction that I use. So let's say, let's go back to this notion of invisible portfolio, which is things that you sold and, and you sort of forgot about. To, to the extent that you can show people their invisible portfolio and the opportunity cost of, of selling something that they could have just kept on holding, uh, have you seen any kind of change behavior as a result of that new set of new way of looking at things, these factor inputs that were invisible to them before, I guess by definition, hence the term. Uh, it's, it's data, it's, it's robust, it's, it's empirical. You can see exactly the price point that you got in out, the day that it got in out. You might even be able to keep a journal as to why I sold this day or why I doubled down and bought another 50%, I added 50% to my exposure because of this whatever. Does it help people? Is there any evidence about people actually learning from their mistakes or even just learning from their own tendencies, which might not necessarily be wrong, but they say, oh no, this is, I'm good at this. I, I should do more of this. So you learn from this, this, you're good at this and let's just keep on doing what works. Uh, I don't know how much uh, data you have at, at Prof of Wall Street with regard to following what people have done and then using it to, to feed new information into the feedback loop to change the decision-making going forward. Is there, is there anything you can share there? Absolutely. Yeah. I'll give, I'll give two stories. I'll give an example of a, of a RIA, a registered investment advisor that I work, work with, uh, analyzes data, and then of a retail investor. The retail investor is, is a bit funnier. We'll just start with that one. So had a client said, I want to know how well I'm performing as an active manager, sends me his data, and his, his invisible portfolio was a, a massive proportion of his total portfolio. Like almost every single trade, like 85% of his trades were buying and losing positions. So this was like, Everything he does is, oh my gosh, I'm down. I'm going to buy more. I'm trying to lower my average cost basis. So those are the facts. And then had a conversation. Are you aware that every single buy or sorry, 85% of it is you're buying losers? And he said, hey, I was not aware of that. And then we said, okay, those are the facts. Most of your purchases are in losing positions. Now let's talk about the motivation behind it. Are you, why are you doing that? So he confirmed, yes, I feel bad that I made a bad decision. Instead of selling, I buy more. And this is where it gets into possibly optimism, mean the belief in mean reversion. I buy more, I feel better, and I believe it's going to come back. Which is overconfidence, right? Because, you know, if, if, you, if you, again, if you really believe that it was a great buy at X, then at 0.8X, it's even more of a, more of a buy. 100%, 100%. So this specific case, this person realized that their motivation was fueled by this basically loss chasing. I feel bad. I lowered my ACB. I feel better. And I believe that it's going to pay off. So there was this insight to this trader who had no idea that, that they were doing that. Then, so 
the amount of work that needs to be done, that wasn't enough. I'll say transparently, that was not enough. Because what happened was some of the assets that were purchased were correct. And there was this massive outperformance, like an 80%, 80%, and I basically was 80% outperformance from the, um, the index. We were using the S&P. But he didn't sell anything. He just wrote it all the way up, all the way down. So the total period of evaluation was about 18 months. He ended up underperforming the S&P, even though there was a period. He was 80% or uh, see, the total delta was like 50% above the S&P. The big picture, if you're actively management, if you're actively managing, you can't just know one thing. You can't just get good at you know, decoding or being aware of optimism or, or loss chasing or the disposition effect, whatever it is. There's a bunch of other skills you need to have that when you start to appreciate it, you, you realize it's much more complicated than it seems on the surface. So, I've, so we'll do another analysis on this person. We'll see whether they learned, you know, profit-taking is not, nothing wrong with some profit-taking. You should do some profit-taking at some time, but extreme form is, is risk-averse driven early sales where you're underperforming like, like crazy. So that's one example. Any, any like follow-up questions of that before we go to the RIA? Uh, no, just uh, do the RIA and then I'll come back and do the questions after that. Okay, so work with an RIA who, uh, it's just an exceptional guy, just a, a professional who's, who's been in the business for years and allowed me to analyze his trades. Most RAAs I'll mention will absolutely not be willing to do that. They're concerned about being exposed or whatever. The whole point is to identify your upside. The whole point was to say, here's your current performance. Let's identify these biases and let's help you outperform your current benchmark. That's the whole point behind it. It's not criticism. It's not you know anything like that. It's, like a professional athlete getting coaching, it's the same thing. That's how LeBron's great, Jordan, all those guys. It's through coaching. So this guy shared with me his data. And lo and behold, he, he beat the S&P over the period of evaluation. And this guy is, again, like not a rookie at this. He's, he also has a PhD, I should mention. And he beat all the benchmarks. And there was one tiny thing that he could have done better that would have given him, and I, I can't really discuss what it was, but it was one tiny thing that he did. And he... Out of this whole report that I provided, he zeroed in on the one sentence. He said, I, I see what you're saying. I know exactly what you're referring to. And I know how to fix that. So, you know, from a retail perspective to a professional, there's like a world of difference. And this guy's an exemplary, you know, quantitative investor. So um, I've seen it in everything in between. So from one having no idea what they're doing to one being, I know the exact two words that are relevant. And now, you know, we're going to reevaluate and see what the upside has been from that. It seems to me that one of the things that comes across when I interview people for this podcast is there's a great need for introspection and self-awareness. And a lot of investors, and I'm not talking about just retail investors or just advisors, it's everyone who invests under any, under any circumstance or under any pretense has biases and relatively few are prepared to do what this RIA uh, client of yours did, which is to stop, reflect, have someone look over his work and say, okay, what am I missing here? What am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? Could you perhaps sh maybe share how advisors, let's, no, let's do both advice. Maybe, maybe the advice is the same for advisors as it is for investors. But what would you tell people to do if they wish to self-diagnose and be better at overcoming their own biased behavior. So if someone was to do it themselves or if, if we were to, to work together? Uh, let's do, let's, it's always great if people were to work with you, but I'm, I was actually hoping the self-diagnosis doing it on your own. 
so that's I think the the challenge is that we you could read entire textbooks on it. You you know you could li listen to this incredible podcast. You could um, you know read the actual academic papers. You could read self help books, and I think that you could you could learn the language, which is an important first step. You could do that. Uh, you could go further and even include it in your like let's say if it's an it's a investment firm, you could have it as part of your culture. You could build it into your decision making processes. The, so th that's an important first step, knowing what the like, learn the language. What does a disposition effect mean? What is what is optimism bias? What is overconfidence? How does it apply? Like, inculcate that into your culture as a as an organization. It, that's not just finance, by the way. You know, banks do it, and and you see it in, in other areas of industry, like you know, biotech firms and defense firms. Like these are behavioral factors that permeate everything that we do. But in finance, uh, if you can do it as a culture, you're you're likely to catch things like investment committees are going to catch each other, cross-checking, building incentives around these kinds of things. Because I think you know we haven't really touched on incentives too much, but I think professionals that are open to it and as a culture can adopt this this sort of lexicon. That's a good first step. Individual investors typically have other professions. Those people are typically you know, working professionals or their parents or, you know, their bandwidth is much smaller and their ability to actually read something and then act on it, especially in, in, in a hot state, I think is, is limited. So I think we need to be realistic about even if they were to know it, you know, take, take, you know if they were one of my students to take my classes, the likelihood that a retail investor would catch themselves is very low, I think, unfortunately, which is why I built technology around it. But I think any money management firm should should know the language, have it in their culture at the bare minimum, have it as part of the filters and investment committee, and have some institutional features like um, swapping portfolios so you're not as attached to it. So you don't have some of the biases associated with that. There are things that you could do just organizationally that can make a big difference. It, it seems as though active mitigation is a big part of what of what you would propose as a, as, a, as a value add for the work that you do. And I think there's a lot that can be done. I know I'm working with uh, course providers to help do continuing education courses to do exactly the things you talked about. Learning the lingo, if you don't, you're not gonna be able to, to fix the problem if you can't even reliably identify the problem. So you have to be able to, at, at, at the very least, be somewhat conversant in, in ferreting out what, what the biases are before you can do anything about them. So uh, I, think, I think the industry is going that way. Uh, one of the problems about uh, many industries and finances is just yet another example is that they move too slowly. Um, the, 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 the transference of knowledge in terms of identifying new information as it comes out and actually incorporating that, that, that new information into the, uh, the academic background. Like a lot of people who give advice, I'm, I'm now coming on to 30 years as, a, as an advisor and the things that I, that I learned when I became an advisor at the beginning and and I'm a CIM and I'm a portfolio manager and I'm a CFP and I, I, you know, I've, I've got a commitment to lifelong learning, but there was nothing in the course material when I took it about behavioral economics. And so all of these things, and, and there was research. I mean, if you think of what Kahneman and Tversky did, that research was, it's more than 30 years old. It's probably 45 or 50 years old, but it still uh, hadn't made it into the course material. And, and Kahneman won the Nobel in 02, uh, I wonder how long it took prospect theory to make it into the textbooks for people who give retail advice, even though there are Nobel Prizes being awarded, to show that this stuff is actually robust, defensible, you can explain it, and, and, and yet we're not teaching the people that are giving advice how to identify these problems. So it's interesting. 
All right, I, let's, uh, we're running short on time, so let's go to the, 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 the ending part. And I always like to end with these two little things that, that are so much fun, and that is, that's Bullshift, followed by Shift Happens. So that's Bullshift is where I invite guests like you, Amos, to say, if there was something that you could change in the financial services industry, what would it be? You, that's a perfect tee up to a, a solution that you verbalize in this, you know, throughout our conversation is that learn the language as you know, for financial advisors, learn the language is the first step. What profit wall street, the, the raison d'etre of profit wall street has been exactly what you said is to take the research and productize it into something that's is part of decision makers workflows. Like it, as I said, at the beginning of the show, it's very difficult to read something and then act on it. Like what, what, no matter what, it could be marital advice, it could be diet advice, whatever it is. It's very difficult to read something and act on it, especially since you've done the wrong thing hundreds of thousands of times, you know? So Profit Wall Street, that's, that's what frustrated me is why am I teaching this in my classes? But when I go to, you know, a, a professional or whoever's managing my parents' accounts or my friends, yeah. like, I don't know, it, they're not, they don't care. They don't seem to, performance is not in their top five. So I said, okay. Why don't we take the very best in, in finance, behavioral finance research and productize it? So what I've built, so, so Profit Wall Street is about solving these problems. The first part is you diagnose. I get a trade history. So I get their entire trade history and then we diagnose and it spells out exactly what the biases are, the quantitative impact that those biases have had on, on that specific investor, whether professional or you know, a fund or whatever it is. So you can have a baseline. Oh my gosh, I did not know that I lost chase, that I sell too early, that I take huge risks on losing, posi losing positions. Like you got to start with the fact. The second part to it, which we haven't talked about very much is smart trade, which is a workflow I've built that de-biases your, your decision-making. It also catches huge mistakes up front. So you, we could talk about, you know, over-trading, overconfidence, overweighting a speculative position, um, what, whatever it is, it's going to catch it as we go along. And what's beautiful about this process is that it has the benefit of your whole trade history to know whether the expected value of that action is positive or negative if you have enough data. So, so as far as I'm concerned, smart trade can change the world because not only is it, is it going to be catching your biases, it's asking you questions about, okay, what are you doing here? Is this a day trade? Is this an investment? Is this a swing trade? What category is this asset? What are your expectations about the future returns on this asset? And once we've captured that, this is exactly about your point about optimism bias, is it literally asks you, what is the future price? So if the price right now is 100 and someone tells me, oh, it's going between 200 and 250, that is crazy to give that level of specificity and how confident it's going to go up over 100%. It's like, so we're capturing information about what people are thinking. We can feed, them, feed it back to them and improve their decisions over time with this added level of what we're calling metadata about every single trade decision. So that's so really the whole point. We're on the same page. So once, once you gather the information and you, you help people to see their own trading history and their own, their, their own uh, proclivities, that's, that's, the, that's the bull shift. That's, that's the problem because they haven't done that yet. I, I think you've already touched on this, but now we're into the shift happens. So if it was up to Amos and you could do whatever you, if you had a magic wand to fix the biggest problems in finance, what would you fix and how would you go about doing it? What I would do specifically with, with managed wealth is I would ensure that the decisions are consistent with client priorities. So there would be fiduciary decisions in the managed wealth space and that they would use the smart trade process because there's really no hiding and you're ensuring alignment between the incentives between the client and the advisor, which if you think of it in its logical extreme are aligned if you're performing better, your AUM increases, 
client referrals go up, attrition goes down. It's an absolute win-win. And that's, I think, how the industry should be run. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been a real pleasure and a fascinating perspective on what, what can be done uh, in using, uh, using software and algorithms and things that weren't used before. Because now that we have the, uh, the tools, we absolutely have to use them to, uh, to finish the job. So thank you so much, Alex. Thank you, John. John DeGuey is a portfolio manager in Toronto and the author of the book Bullshift, How Optimism Bias Threatens Your Finances. Bullshift is available online and in bookstores everywhere. The opinions expressed in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice. Bullshift, the podcast, is produced by TalkShoe, a division of IOTUM. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.